This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to the special edition of The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper today, and we begin with our 2020 lead. It's now the final stretch of the presidential campaign, and Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Mike Pence, the vice president, are all in battleground states today. President Trump is here in Washington defending his record on coronavirus and attacking comments Kamala Harris and Joe Biden made about a coronavirus vaccine. His very liberal running mate, the most liberal person in Congress, by the way, is not a competent person, in my opinion, would destroy this country and would destroy this economy. Should immediately apologize for the reckless anti-vaccine rhetoric that they are talking right now, talking about endangering lives, and it undermines science. Well, all of this is happening as follow-up continues over that Atlantic article, which claimed President Trump had called fallen U.S. service members suckers and losers, as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports. Today, President Trump seizing on Senator Kamala Harris's vaccine comments, calling on Harris and Joe Biden to apologize. Biden and his very liberal running mate should immediately apologize for the reckless anti-vaccine rhetoric that they are talking right now. It undermines science. But Trump is mischaracterizing Harris's answer when asked if she would trust a vaccine touted by Trump. I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump. I would trust the word of public health experts and scientists, but not Donald Trump. Trump, who has repeatedly undermined public health experts and pressured government agencies to rush a vaccine, insisting Harris is playing politics. She's talking about disparaging a vaccine so that people don't think the achievement was a great achievement. Even as he continues to suggest, without any evidence, that a vaccine could be ready by Election Day. We're going to have a vaccine very soon, maybe even before a very special date. You know what date I'm talking about. Trump is also still defending himself from an Atlantic magazine bombshell, insisting he never referred to fallen service members as suckers and losers and touting a new denial by a former aide. I was very happy to see Zach Fuentes came out. And so I was happy to see that Zach came out and said it's not true. He just came out. And uh, it's a disgrace. Who would say a thing like that? Only an animal would say a thing like that. Fuentes saying in a statement he, quote, did not hear POTUS call anyone losers when he told Trump he could not fly to a World War I ceremony because of weather. But Fuentes also suggesting Trump may have made similar comments another time, saying sources may be, quote, conflating stories. Even as Trump insisted he would never disparage the military, he attacked the military brass. I'm not saying the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. Trump taking questions today after delivering charged political attacks on the front steps of the White House. Biden's a stupid person, you know that. And falsely claiming the U.S. is leading the world in suppressing the coronavirus. We're hopefully rounding the final turn in the pandemic. We are uh, an absolute leader in every way. 
And Pam, on this Labor Day, uh, schools across the country are preparing to reopen amid a pandemic, but they don't have the funding needed to reopen safely. That's because negotiations on Capitol Hill have stalled amid gridlock between the president and Democratic negotiators. The president, of course, has refused to sit down with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, and he insisted again today when he was pressed on it that nothing would change if he did sit down with them. He said instead he's taking the, quote, high road by not sitting down and negotiating directly. Pam. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. At any minute now, presidential candidate Joe Biden will join a virtual event in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He spent Labor Day visiting the largest federation of unions in the United States, and he met with AFL-CIO um, President Richard Trumka. CNN Jessica Dean joins us live now. So, Jessica, let's start with those comments from President Trump. He said Biden and Harris should apologize for their, quote, anti-vaccine rhetoric. What has Biden said today? Well, he did talk about it today briefly on the campaign trail, Pam. He is in that critical battle, battleground state of Pennsylvania. And when asked by a reporter if he would take a COVID vaccine if it was made available before Election Day, here is what Joe Biden said earlier today. He said so many things that aren't true. I'm worried if we do have a really good vaccine, people are going to be reluctant to take it. And so he's, he's undermining public confidence. But pray God we have it. If I could get a vaccine tomorrow, I'd do it. If it would cost me the election, I'd do it. Biden also called for full transparency around the vaccine process and also added, as we've heard him say time and time again, we also heard Kamala Harris earlier in the show talking about it, that they must listen to the scientists, that they're going to be guided by scientists uh, and what they say is correct and safe uh, when it comes to a vaccine. Pam. All right, Jessica Dean, thank you so much for that. And joining us now, CNN's John Harwood and Washington Post White House reporter Tolu Olovranipa. Thanks uh, so much for coming on this Labor Day, gentlemen. Great Great to have you here. John, I want to start with you. Uh, today, President Trump said Biden and Harris are casting a possible vaccine in a negative light for political reasons. But then when asked if, if Trump is pushing a vaccine for political reasons, here's what he said. No, I'm saying that because we want to save a lot of lives. The fast With me, it's the faster the better. With somebody else, maybe they would say it politically, but I'm saying it in, in terms of this is what we need. We have to have, if we get the vaccine early, that's a great thing, whether it's politics or not. Now, do benefits inure if you're able to get something years ahead of schedule? I, I guess maybe they do. So, John, how much weight does this potential vaccine really have on the election? Well, I think it would be a significant effect, Pam, on the mood of the country uh, if people had the uh, credible news that a vaccine was on the way and try to lift this cloud that has shrouded the entire country for the last six months. Um, look, I, I think if you discount for the fact that everything any presidential candidate says during the home stretch of the campaign, uh, they hope for political effects, the president is projecting here. He has injected himself, as Jeremy said in his piece, uh, into the scientific process multiple times, shunted aside uh, public health advice. Uh, he is the one who uh, uh, has undermined confidence in what his administration uh, is doing on coronavirus. That's why the polls show about a third or maybe 40 percent of Americans approve of the administration's response and a su substantial majority 
disapprove. It is the president who uh, is uh, concerned about his trailing position in the election, trying to push this forward as rapidly as possible. It's also why he's pushed unproven treatments like hydroxychloroquine. Uh, he is, uh, he is uh, accusing Biden of what precisely what he is doing. Yeah, that was striking that he was uh, accusing them of politicizing the vaccine when he made clear today that he would like this vaccine before the election. Um, and we also heard Harris say that she would not trust President Trump alone on a vaccine and that health experts would likely be muzzled or suppressed under this administration. Tolu, are those comments going to hurt the Biden-Harris campaign if people choose to knock at a vaccine? Well, I do think they've tried to clean up their, their comments over the past 24 to 48 hours to try to clarify that they make a difference between trusting the president, President Trump, and trusting the health experts. Uh, obviously, they've talked about the things that President Trump has said over the past several months in which he's talked about injecting disinfectant and UV light and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, so the president has done himself no favors in this argument, but they've tried to make a very clear distinction saying that if someone like Dr. Fauci or the public health experts within the government said that the vaccine was safe and effective, then they would take it. Uh, but we have heard from the Trump campaign trying to push back against this narrative, sort of describing Biden and Harris in, as anti-vaxxers, saying that they are pushing disinformation, pushing conspiracy theories. I think that's part of the reason they've tried to be more clear in their answers over the past 24 hours. But this is an issue that I, I think uh, voters are, are looking at very closely, especially as the president talks about a vaccine before Election Day. That's something that you don't hear very many respected public health experts predicting. And the fact that the president is getting ahead of his public health, health experts by saying a vaccine could be ready just in the next few weeks mm -hmm. gives uh, Biden mm -hmm. and Harris an argument to make a distinction between trusting the president and trusting the public health experts. And this is the time, John, look, it's Labor Day. This is the time that the campaigns really ramp up um, before the election, just a couple of months away. And let's look back, right? Uh, today, Joe Biden's in Pennsylvania. Before 2016, Pennsylvania has voted for Democrats in six straight presidential elections. How important is this state uh, for, for both contenders? It's very important, Pam. And, and if the president can somehow uh, come back, overcome the deficit that he's looking at and win it, that would uh, cut off one of Joe Biden's paths to 270 electoral votes. Uh, Donald Trump became president because he narrowly defeated Hillary Clinton in three Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. The shortest path for Joe Biden uh, to uh, win the White House back is to take those states. He's got leads in all three. Uh, we've had polls uh, showing different size of leads in Pennsylvania. I think uh, the, the average of polls is right around four, four to five points. Um, the, that is not an overwhelming advantage. The president still has a chance. He's trying to rally that white working class base. But one of the things that we've seen, Pam, in this race is that both nationally and in the battleground states, uh, the, lead, the advantages for Biden have been pretty stable. Larger national lead, smaller lead in the battleground states, but they haven't moved all that much. Certainly the two conventions didn't do anything fundamental to this race. So the burden is on President Trump to try to reverse that. Right. Of course, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, these Tulu used to be what was considered the blue wall until 2016. Uh, when you look at how things are shaping up in these key states, uh, what do you assess? How do you think things are going for, the, for Trump and Biden? Well, I, I think John hit, hit the nail on the head in terms of the importance of these states and how these various campaigns are looking at these states as critical in their path to try to get to 270. I do think that the race is relatively close, in part because uh, there are some voters who 
uh, have not made up their mind. While the vast majority of, of Americans have already made up their mind, I think the fight right now is over the you know 10 to 15 percent of Americans, specifically in those key states, who are still making up, deciding whether or not they want to go with President Trump because they like some of his policies, like what happened with, with the economy, to the extent that polls show that President Trump is more trusted on the economy. Maybe they don't like his personality as much. And what, about voting for Joe Biden in, in part because they, they think it's time to turn the page on a divisive era in which President Trump has really fanned the flames of division in the country. Uh, so I do think that those states will be in, incredibly important. You see the two campaigns taking completely different uh, arguments to those different voters who are yet to make up their minds. President Trump focusing on law and order, Joe Biden focusing on healing the country. All right, Talu, John, great to have you on. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. You too. And now I want to bring in my colleague, Barbara Starr, because we heard Barbara, the president today at this press conference at the White House. He was insisting that uh, top military brass don't like him because he wants to end U.S. wars. What's been the reaction? Oh, well, Pamela, you know, he, he started out, as he has for the last several days, trying to push back against all these comments that allege he has made disparaging remarks about the U.S. military all coming from the article in Atlantic Magazine. He's trying to push back, trying to say that is not accurate, that it's essentially not true. But then, out of the clear blue sky, he launches this attack on his own military command. And the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. But uh, we're getting out of the endless wars. So he says the troops love him, but the commanders don't because they want to fight wars, that that's what they want to do to support defense contractors. Look, that um, to say that is uh, an allegation without proof or, or uh, it w would be an overstatement. There is no proof of that. Uh, as our own analyst John Kirby points out, uh, military commanders fight the wars that presidents tell them to fight. Wars are decisions to go to war are made by a president of the United States, not the generals, not the admirals. So he's launching this attack against his own top military commanders. How this will go over the, with the troops, we simply don't know. But it also comes very importantly as there's increasing chatter around Washington that Mr. Trump could be getting ready to replace his own defense secretary, Mark Esper. Another indication that he's just looking for some changes he wants to make. We do not know what will happen next with that. Pamela? And I know you will keep us posted if anything does on that front. Barbara Starr, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Why scenes like this from around the country this Labor Day weekend are especially troubling doctors as we head into the fall. Plus, we talked to one teacher going above and beyond to make sure her students and their families have access to food during this pandemic. We'll be back. In the health lead today, we expect to see packed beaches and large parties on a normal Labor Day weekend. But scenes like this right here in the middle of a global pandemic are driving fears of another spike in new cases. We saw it after Memorial Day and after the 4th of July. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, top health experts say these massive gatherings combined with students returning to school could lead to a disastrous fall and winter. Is this the spark for another surge? Or this? Or this? We'll find out 
in a few weeks. Things have stabilized, things are much better, but we have seen, as you mentioned, spikes after long weekends. In part due to Memorial Day crowds celebrating the start of summer, new case counts soared from around 20,000 a day mid-May to over 70,000, a little more than a month later. And Labor Day, we're starting from a much higher baseline. I don't think it'll take much to really bring us back up to 70,000 new cases a day. This weekend, of course, also marks the unofficial start of fall when people will be moving more indoors, when infection risk rises and... People are exhausted. That's another challenge, trying to keep up our vigilance at a time when we know that this can spread more aggressively. It's also back to school time. Colleges now in every single state dealing with outbreaks. 11 Northeastern students just kicked out for the entire semester without refunds after allegedly gathering in a hotel room. Keep them at the university in a place that's sequestered enough from the other students, but don't have them go home because they could be spreading it in their home state. 29 states right now seeing 5% or more tests coming back positive. A bad sign. Past few days, West Virginia and North Dakota seeing record infection rates. Missouri and Puerto Rico seeing record death tolls. Meanwhile, as we near Election Day, the president says we've turned the corner. We're going to have a vaccine very soon, maybe even before a very special date. You know what date I'm talking about. I think the likelihood that we're going to have a vaccine for widespread use in 2020 is extremely low. At least three potential vaccine producers, rivals, reportedly now preparing a joint statement that they will not seek government approval until they know for sure a vaccine is safe and effective. This, according to the Wall Street Journal. The fact that we're seeing the pharmaceutical companies sort of protecting the U.S. population from, from the government is something I've never seen before. So the president wants a vaccine as soon as possible. He wants schools to be open, brick and mortar. He wants normality. Now, we are tracking the 101 biggest K through 12 districts in the country. 16 of them are starting their school year tomorrow morning. 14 of the 16 online only, including Chicago, Houston, Dallas and Baltimore. Pamela. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much for that. I want to bring in Dr. Seema Yasmin, a former disease detective for the CDC and a CNN medical analyst. Great to see you. Let's start with what we're seeing today across the country. As we speak, we're seeing packed beaches, as you see right here, little social distancing. Is it inevitable that we're going to see another spike in coronavirus cases like we did after Memorial Day holiday and Fourth of July holiday? It's really worrying from that perspective, Pamela, because as you said, you know, with Memorial Day, we saw those spikes happen and we know there's a lag. It's not like you'll see the spike in cases a day or two after. It can take about two weeks. The concern is that, you know, people are fed up. This country has not had the pandemic response that it should have. So we're not in a position like many other countries around the world where we can start to have larger gatherings or, you know, start to ease restrictions a little bit. We're not in that position because we're still seeing around 40 thousand Americans newly infected every day. And these kinds of images and just that the thought of people getting together for barbecues and pool parties for the long weekend certainly worries us that we'll just see more and more new infections and more and more deaths. Is this 
just a vicious cycle, a pattern that we're going to see happen over and over again until there is a widespread vaccine. Cases spike, cities lock down, cases decline, uh, people go back to normal until another spike. Is this just kind of what we're in for until the vaccine is available? So it's important to remember that even if we get a safe and effective vaccine, first we'll need about 60 or 70 percent of people to get it so that we have that herd level immunity, what we also call community immunity. But it doesn't mean that just because we have a vaccine, we can let down our guard completely, because even at that point, Pamela, we'll still need to be doing some physical distancing in places and still need to be really making sure people are observing good hand hygiene, still wearing masks in some cases as well. So it's all of that together. It's not like a vaccine comes along and that's our full answer. We'll gradually get to that, but it will be step by step. And for some, you'll have to have two doses. It's not so clear cut, so simple. But yet the president continues to suggest or allude to a vaccine uh, possibly being approved before Election Day. What is the practical impact of these comments from the president of the United States on those vaccine developers on the on the vaccine process? I think it's scaring them. I think it's scaring them to the point that we're seeing these rival competitor vaccine makers getting together to write this public pledge to all of us to say, hey, look, we need you to know we're not cutting corners. We're doing this properly. They're even saying we think in this pledge that's forthcoming that they're not going to prematurely submit any data to federal regulators because they understand that this whole exercise, the whole point of a vaccine, it all hinges on trust. And the president's been chipping away at that. We've seen how it's impacted scientists, too. Even at the FDA, Pamela, there are some top regulators saying that they are thinking of getting together to write their own public pledge as well. And that's pretty unprecedented when it comes to federal scientists. So people are so worried that all of this good, all of this money and effort into developing vaccines could all be undone because of political pressure. And what about finding the necessary volunteers for the trials that are so critical for the necessary data to approve the vaccine? vaccine. We can't have safe vaccines without those amazing volunteers who sign up for these clinical trials. And this just makes it even more tricky, more challenging, more scary for them as well. People need to know that the scientists are doing their job, that they are being scientists, that they're not being pressured by politicians. They're not speeding things up to the point where it's unsafe. So this political pressure, this administration kind of worrying us in terms of potentially springing an October surprise, all of that is so bad for the science at a time when we need public trust in scientists. I want to go to what we just heard from Nick Watts' piece. Uh, He mentioned 29 states are seeing a positivity rate above 5%, which is the CDC's benchmark. How concerning is that as we see schools restarting across the country as we head into flu season? It's really worrying because it's not just that we're seeing a spike and then seeing it come down eventually. We're seeing states across the country that are spiking and then consistently having these high case rates. There are about six to 10 states where the numbers are going up and they just keep going up. And then there are some states on Pacific territories as well where the numbers have been low historically and they're going up too. So that trend is completely in the wrong direction. Okay, so let's let's look at the big picture here. The pandemic was announced in March, um, and now we are in September. The president said today at the White House during this uh, this press conference, if you want to call it that, that the U.S. is a leader in the world on on combating coronavirus. Is that true? Where is the U.S. in the grand scheme of things compared to other countries? 
it's not true and you don't have to have the degrees I have to say that it's not true. I think so many people with common sense who can look at the charts, look at what's happening in their communities will tell you the US is absolutely not leading the science or the public health response in the way that other countries are. And I think it's really gaslighting us, to be honest, to keep saying that because on the one hand, the politicians will say, oh, things are going great, some politicians at least. On the other hand, we're seeing about a thousand Americans die every day. That is not acceptable. That is not the sign of a competent functioning government or a good pandemic response. Right. And, and you know, the fall and the winter could be crucial. I mean, we, we think it's hard now. It could potentially be even worse then with the confluence of the flu and coronavirus, right? I mean, what, what could that look like? What do we need to brace ourselves for? Absolutely. So you remember in the spring when we were talking so much about flattening the curve and the whole point of that was to protect the healthcare system, to prevent the overwhelming of hospitals and clinics. But then think about an average flu season that can start to overwhelm healthcare systems just with the flu alone. Add into that a global pandemic that the U.S. is still not getting under control. You combine those two, the flu and COVID-19, and we really need to make sure that people are getting their flu vaccines, physical distancing, wearing masks and doing those things that will protect them from both viruses, both from influenza and from COVID-19. I think it's just we have to buckle up. It's going to be a difficult fall and winter is the bottom line. We have to be prepared for that. All right, Dr. Seema Yasmin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Well, multiple fires burn out of control, leaving firefighters exhausted in California and Mother Nature is only making the conditions worse. News in our national lead, California is seeing its worst year ever for wildfires. More than two million acres have burned across the state. That's more than 10 times, 10 times the size of New York City. There are more than 20 active fires there right now. We know that one of the fires, the one you see on your screen right now, it was started by a device at a gender reveal party. CNN's Dan Simon joins me now. Dan, U.S. Forest Forest Service just announced it's shutting down national forests in Southern and Central California to the public tonight. Well, hi, Pamela. That just goes to show you how much of California is being impacted by these wildfires, particularly Central and Southern California. We are about uh, an hour outside of Fresno, and you can see this checkpoint behind me where police and firefighters are making evacuations. The fire is getting very close to some of these mountain communities. We do know that some homes have burned, but for the most part, this fire is burning in the Sierra National Forest, but that's very popular for campers. And what we saw over the weekend is we saw those 200 or so people who were huddled at a boat launch until they were successfully airlifted out. You did have about 10 or so folks with moderate injuries, but hopefully everyone is okay. The real unknown, Pamela, uh, is the weather. Right now we're dealing with triple digit temperatures. It's supposed to be cooler tomorrow, but we'll see uh, what their weather looks like. Obviously, uh, the unknown is the wind as well, if that continues to fan the flames. And, of course, we're dealing with a lot of dry fuel. Pamela? Okay. Dan Simon, live for us there in California. And on top of these devastating wildfires, parts of California are seeing record-breaking temperatures. He just alluded to, to that L.A. County hitting 121 degrees over the weekend. Joining me now is CNN's Tom Sater from the CNN Weather Center. So, Tom, as California sees these extraordinarily high temperatures, other parts of, of the country are expected to see potential snow this week. What is going on? Uh, 2020 is going yeah, right? on, Pamela. And uh, 
All right, uh, climate change, sprinkle in humanity, growing population, extreme heat, the fires. Three of the largest fires in California history are burning as we speak. Yesterday, we surpassed the greatest amount of acreage ever scorched, over 2 million acres. Firefighters are noticing now, as you take a look at the pictures and even the, the numbers here, 83 large fires. Since the 1970s, the, uh, the fire, fire, uh, fire season has grown not by weeks, but by two to three months. Saturday, you can see the satellite imagery shrouded all in, of course, the smoke. This is not rainfall. We talk about these pyroclastic uh, uh, billowing uh, towers, of course, of smoke. We're also noticing firefighters, of course, the most experienced fighting force in the world, experienced with knowledge, telling us that in the last seven years to 10 years, the number of fires that are larger are growing as well. So again, when you look at the red flag warnings here, this is interesting. From border to border, 90% of California, red flag watches and warnings. But notice Colorado and Wyoming. The same areas, the same states with red flag warnings also have winter storm warnings, also have freeze warnings. Take a look at this. Now, this is going to help firefighters in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, parts of Utah into Colorado. Uh, the, this is going to be staggering. I mean, temperatures dropping on Saturday in Denver to 101. We'll look at the high in the 30s tomorrow. So this snowfall is going to be significant, not just three, six inches. Some areas of southern Colorado could get 18 to 24. No doubt this is going to help the firefighters. Unfortunately, this pool of cold air that's sliding down, which will break about 100 records for cold, is not going to be making its way in toward California. Unfortunately, the firefighters here will have to continue to battle this heat, although they get a little bit of a break. Unfortunately, with this front comes some stronger winds, Pamela. But what a shock to the system for man and beast. I would say so. That is a good way to sum that up. Tom Sater, thanks so much. Well, how a nonprofit from California is helping people get coronavirus tests on the other side of the country. That story is up next. And our health lead now, the U.S. is seeing a recent jump in COVID testing, averaging more than 740,000 tests in the last seven days. This is according to the COVID tracking project, but that is still far short of the peak from July. Last week, the CDC changed its testing guidance to encourage fewer people to get tested after pressure from the, quote, top down, according to an official. Well, the move sparked massive backlash with health officials saying we need more, not less testing. And one actor is hoping to help do just that with his nonprofit. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta has a look at how Sean Penn is changing the testing landscape. What you're looking at is testing, something any public health expert in the world will tell you is the key to controlling a pandemic like COVID-19. And here in Fulton County, Georgia, where I live, that need, which has been slow to be met, has finally found some help from the nonprofit organization CORE. And this familiar face, Sean Penn. This partnership sets an example not only for the state of Georgia, but for the rest of the nation. Y'all ready for this? When was the moment you realized that this county, or at least Atlanta, was in over its head on this? When Georgia got in the spotlight, that's when it started to hit home. For Fulton County Board Chairman Rob Pitts, that spotlight came when Georgia became one of the first states to reopen on April 24th. Today, there's no statewide mask mandate. I'm confident that Georgians don't need a mandate to do the right thing. And average daily cases in Georgia are more than doubled since that last week in April. When we started to follow the advice of the scientists and the medical professionals, uh, we focused on, on testing. 
It's part of the reason Chairman Pitts funded a $3 million contract with CORE to help fill the gaps. I would think that's going to be Georgia Department of Health. Right. And instead, it's this nonprofit from the other side of the country doing this work. The Department of Public Health, the counties can have these ideas and know the implementation of the action. They don't necessarily have the personnel to, to carry it out. But we're the feet on the ground. We can bring the personnel, add surge capacity. The numbers seem to show that so far, the strategy is working. If you look at Fulton County's positivity rate over the past two weeks, it's around 6%. Georgia is around 10%. But still, as the most populous county with the most cases, it is like Fulton County is a blue petri dish in the middle of a red state. I was not experiencing any symptoms. I just came to get tested because one of my friends tested positive. And this is important. Who to test? Finding asymptomatic cases. That's been a priority for CORE since they first came here in May. Every essential worker, symptomatic or asymptomatic, is invited, encouraged to come here and we will test you. Remember, according to the CDC, 40% of people who carry the virus have no symptoms, and yet they are responsible for around 50% of the spread. And now as the number of tests and cases are moving in the right direction, Fulton County Board of Health Director Dr. Lynn Paxton says it's time to think about the next steps. Contact tracing becomes even more uh, crucial as the numbers start to fall think about it almost as if you're trying to stamp out, you know, embers from a fire, you know, you you put the fire out, but if you have little, you know, little embers, they can catch fire again. And CORE is helping to do that as well. Let's do this one first. That means going door to door to try and reach those who have tested positive but couldn't be contacted any other way. And that's because every test, every contact informed, every step we can possibly take is what's going to help us win this battle. Now, Pamela, I do want to point out that even the chairman of Fulton County, Chairman Pitts there, he was confused when there was these news reports from the CDC coming out saying asymptomatic people no longer need to be tested. Uh, He had to verify that with the scientists and understand that, in fact, as we pointed out, asymptomatic people can actually be significant spreaders of this disease, and they they definitely need to be tested, which is why CORE is so focused on that. Uh, Just had Labor Day weekend coming off of that, Pamela, so they are actually uh, planning to to do a lot more testing. If it was anything like after Memorial Day or after July 4th weekend, it is likely that the numbers will go up. Many people may not know it. You test those asymptomatic people, and hopefully they can isolate and keep the numbers down. That's the whole goal. Pamela? That is. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. And let's turn now to our national lead. When this pandemic started six months ago, Margaret Norris, a teacher in Montgomery County, Maryland, knew that one of the biggest hardships would be getting food to her students. So she set out to provide meals to the most vulnerable members of her community, packing and delivering up to 150 bags of food per week to families for the past six months. And Margaret Norris joins me now. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on, Margaret. First of all, how have you been able to accomplish this? Thank you, Pamela, for having me. It's been a community effort. Uh, When we were told on Thursday, March 12th, that Maryland schools were going home, our immediate first thought was the children would have to eat. And a group of teachers on Friday, March 13th, we went shopping and we bought what we could buy and we sent home 100 bags of food. The next week, a community center that we work with had a request for more, and my principal asked me, how long can you do this? 
I put that question in my social media and so far the answer has been six months. So how have you been successful in uh, people donating money and so forth? Because you're studying now initially with your teacher's salary, buying food for all these students. Yes, donations have come in from the community. They've fallen off. It's getting harder for everybody. Uh, we've seen that in our neighborhoods. But the donations have coming in, they're coming in strongly still, and I've learned how to shop differently. I shop at restaurant supply stores. I'm able to provide rice at 30 cents a pound, beans at 30 cents a pound. I have an army of volunteers that take 50-pound bags of beans and rebag them all for me into court-sized containers. Hmm. That's, I think we could all learn from you on that. Tell us what you've seen, Margaret, in terms of the struggle for some of these families to get food on the table and how that struggle has increased during this pandemic. It's so hard. It's just all so hard. I have one mom who has three sons, and they're eight and nine and 11, and she had a job, but she couldn't keep it because she couldn't leave the children home alone all day. And I text with her often and I take food to her home. And weeks ago, she texted me and she said, I don't want you to do this anymore because I'm so ashamed. I'm so mm. ashamed that you're spending your money to feed my children. Sorry, feeding my children is my job. And I did not coin this, I wish I had, but I had read by then the phrase solidarity, not charity. So I assured her that she's blessing all of us by letting us help her. Mm -hmm. Children have to eat. The thing about children is they're hungry again tomorrow. So we have to get this food out there. There is absolutely no shame and, and that mother uh, going through what she's going through right now. I mean, this is so difficult on so many families, parents, single parents losing their jobs, then they're having to stay home to teach their kids. It, it's just such a difficult time. From what you have seen on, on the front lines, Margaret, more, what more needs to be done to help families out across this country? What more can we do to help? I think an important thing for people to do is to educate themselves. Um, when you walk out of a grocery store with 120 cans of spaghetti sauce or crushed tomatoes and pasta, you get a lot of comments about, you must be having a spaghetti dinner. And when I've told people in our community that, no, I'm doing this for people who are hungry a mile away, I've been met with disbelief. People saying, that's, that's not a problem here. We're a wealthy mm -hmm. suburb outside of Washington, D.C. So I think people need to educate themselves. And I also think people need to know and realize that you can do small things. $20 can put two pounds of beans into 25 households. $5 can do milk and eggs. $100 can provide 10 of the bags that I'm providing that have three or four days worth of food in them. So we don't have to have necessarily grand gestures. And I think people need to know that we can do little things. That's such an important point. Just every day, if we all did something small, that could add up to so much for these families who are in need right now. And it's a way for us to really come together in a positive way. And you are teaching kindergarten virtually right now. How has adjusting to this learning style been for you as a teacher and for your young students? Uh, it's interesting. It, it's funny how much there's still kindergartners. There's still the personality comes through. Uh, we're so grateful to all of our parents because without the parents, I couldn't be doing this. It's hard for them to get five and six year olds on the on the Zoom three times a day. But we're all being patient with each other. And we still laugh a lot. And it's just so important that the children get a chance to talk to each other. You know, there's no lunch, there's no recess, there's no soccer team. So focusing on that, that interaction and that communication between them, I think is the most important thing to do. Okay, really quick, before we let you go, how can we help you donate? What, what do we need to know to, to, to help out with this effort? Well, my school is our Cole Elementary School. We're in Silver Spring, Maryland. What, um, sorry, donation. say the elementary school again? Arcola, A-R-C-O-L-A, Arcola Elementary School. And we work with the Montgomery Housing Partnership. 
and they're both on Facebook. You can find us there. And uh, but do this in your own communities. Yeah. Do this at home. Exactly. Buy a bag of extra bag of groceries. Call call your local Title One school. And if you don't know what that means, that's the first step you could educate yourself on. Yep. Find a Title One school in your neighborhood. Call them and ask what you can do. Yeah, it's not just Montgomery County. Margaret Norris, thank you so much, and keep up that great work helping so many families. Meantime, President Trump is attacking another city's mayor. That mayor just fired back. We'll be back. One hundred and one consecutive days of protests in Portland, Oregon. Overnight, there were 15 arrests and protesters lighting mattresses on fire. But across the country in Rochester, we have seen mostly peaceful protests calling for justice in the death of Daniel Prude after an encounter with police. CNN's Polo Sandoval joins me now from Rochester. So, Polo, the president said the city had a bad night. What did you see there? And, and Pamela, that characterization made by the president that last night was a bad night here in Rochester, certainly not accurate, especially when you look at multiple accounts here, including from the Rochester Police Department that said that things remained peaceful last night. We did not see that repeat of some of those violent clashes that we did see during the first four days of demonstrations here in the city of Rochester. And I have to tell you, much of that uh, is, the, much of the credit there goes to some of the community leaders here, many of the faith leaders that literally put themselves between protesters and police acting as a sort of peacekeeping buffer, if you will. The mayor here, uh, Mayor Lovely Warren, applauding those efforts, as well as also the police department here saying that last night they certainly came forward with a smaller or more uh, restrained posture. Uh, but at the same time, the mayor also firing back at the commander-in-chief earlier today with a statement of her own saying, uh, Mayor Warren writing, I asked that all involved uh, in last night's protests ignore the commentary from the president. She writes, it is clear that his only desire is to bait people to act with hate and incite violence and, he, and that he believes will benefit him politically, we will not give him what he wants. So really what you're getting here from top city officials here in Rochester, Pamela, is a message to the president uh, to leave this city out of that, uh, uh, we continue to hear this uh, law and order uh, agenda item that we hear from the president. In the meantime, we do expect more potential protests tonight. Those church leaders that will be in that protest again as that investigation by the New York's attorney general presses on. Pamela. All right, Paula Sandoval, thanks so much. Live for us in Rochester, New York. And tonight, CNN is presenting a special look at the long, strange trip of the Trump presidency, including a look at the president's confusing response to the COVID pandemic, hosted by our very own Jake Tapper. Governors were left to fend for their states. It was just mass uh, pandemonium. Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan. It was a 50-state strategy, some states doing better than others, uh, and um, really a mad scramble uh, to try to find these things. Hogan secretly sourced half a million tests for his state from South Korea. I asked the president about that at a briefing we had. Could have saved a lot of money, but that's okay. Go to South Korea for no, I don't think he needed to go to South Korea. I think he needed to get a little knowledge would have been helpful. He had been assuring that testing was amazing in the United States, and the question was, well, if that's true, then why is the governor of Maryland having to go to another country? Testing was lagging far behind, despite the president's spin. Anybody that wants a test can get a test. That's what I would the just say line. that we. That was a lie. Experts agree one of the singular reasons that we still have so many cases and so many deaths is because the U.S. lagged in its ability to identify the virus through testing and isolate it. 
Don't miss it tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern, the CNN special report, Donald Trump's presidency. And our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.